Welcome to the Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians podcast. GSASEP represents emergency physicians who work in the federal government, including active duty military, National Guard, and military reserves, as well as the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service, and other federal agencies. Our mission is advancing emergency care for America's heroes. In this podcast, we bring you lectures and conversations with leaders in federal emergency medicine to help you better care for your patients and lead your departments. The views expressed on this podcast are personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Defense, any branch of the military, or the federal government, and they do not constitute endorsement of any product by any of these entities. I am Kat Landa. I think I've met everyone here. I'm actually really happy that this is a smaller group because the larger groups, you have a little bit more pressure. Um, I'm going to apologize in advance. I have an emotional support coffee um, up on the front row. I may grab it from time to time. So I apologize in advance for being unprofessional. It will not be the first time I'm called that. So um, (laughs) without further ado, we'll move on through this. This is the usual disclaimer. Um, I'm here as me. I don't represent the ideas and philosophies of the U.S. Marine Corps, the Navy, so forth. So this is not Kabul. This is March 2019 when I was deployed in Kandahar with Christina Polk, who's here. Um, We were at the Kandahar Roll 3, and it was the last trauma shift of that deployment that I was on. It was my very last patient of the night. Came in the middle of the night, and he was an Afghan Special Forces Um, guy. And so we took care of most of those during that deployment, lots of Afghan special forces. But this happened to be their commanding officer who I never met. And fortunately, he wasn't terribly wounded, and I was actually getting ready to discharge him. And as I'm finishing up some of the final handwritten paperwork, the interpreter that's with him calls me over. And so I come over to the, the first bed there, and I said, yes, can I help you? And this Afghan commanding officer stands up, puts his hand out to shake it, which is very unusual for an Afghan male, and speaks to me, looks me in the eye, and speaks to me in very clear English. And he told me, thank you so much for what your team, all the teams here, have done during your time. We understand that you're leaving, and I wanted you to, to hear it from me, since I'm here, that we are so grateful for all the care that you've given our Afghan forces in our fight against the Taliban. He said, my men and I fight so hard because we know you're here to help us out. The next thing that he said is the part that I wanted to highlight in this. He said, I hope that next time you're in Afghanistan, you're here as a tourist because we have a beautiful country, we have a beautiful culture, and we have wonderful people here. He says, my true hope that we can get rid of the Taliban and you can be here as a tourist. And that's what they call foreshadowing because that was not my last time in Afghanistan and it certainly was not as a tourist the second time around. So this is the thought that I was having as we're flying in to Kabul from Qatar, from Saudi Arabia um, on the 16th of August. Now that being said, we weren't deployed directly to go to Afghanistan. So I was on a special purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force, Crisis Response Central Command, very long title and only the way the Marine Corps will do. 
and the 21s for the year. And we deployed in April, and I was the officer in charge of the shock trauma platoon. Now, just as a brief background, um, a special purpose MAGTAF is basically a very small, smaller force, about 2,200 people, and it's a mix of air, ground, and logistics. Um, and so the shock trauma platoon was the highest echelon of care that goes with that, which is two ER doctors and two, three, three nurses, two PAs, and 15 corpsmen of various backgrounds, many of which were very junior. And we deployed in April of 2021 initially into Kuwait, and then actually moved the entire special purpose MAGTAF into Saudi Arabia. And anyone that had done this deployment prior to me said, you are not going to do anything. Since, you know, 2013, when they started sending troops every six months on this deployment, many of my colleagues, many of which who have come to GSA ASAP over the years, and some of you who have deployed on these, really not a lot happens. And in fact, one of my mentors said, oh, Kat, you're going to lose a piece of your soul. You're going to be so bored. And I was worried about that as an OIC because if I'm going to be bored, which, I mean, let's be real, it happens easily. My corpsmen, who are all very junior to me in age and maturity level, are definitely going to be bored and bored people get in trouble. So I made it my goal to make sure we're doing lots of training. And I bashfully say that all this training wasn't because I'm super wise or really having like this long-term plan. It was like, I'm going to be bored. My people are going to be bored. They're going to get in trouble. I'm going to be in trouble. This is going to be a just catastrophic, catastrophic event. So I basically, as soon as we landed, knew before then, I said, you know what? We're not just going to train our people, not just these 22 people that I have under me, um, but we're going to reach out and work with the ground corpsmen. Now there's, you know, it's a battalion of Marines that went with 2-1. And there's about 50 corpsmen that are with them, and many of which we've never interacted with before. So we made it our goal, my STP and I, to start doing lots of training. So we did lots of blood training, making sure that every corpsman across that special purpose bag taft got Valkyrie training at some point in time. And that's what I was demonstrating over here. I did not think they were going to be utilizing with us, but I figured, hey, it's a good TCCC review because you go in depth for a lot of the TCCC. It's a great blood transfusion review. And guess what? Worst case scenario, I've got this. Um, so we did a lot of blood training. We did a walking blood bank. That's a picture of one of my corpsmen there in a walking blood bank that they were utilizing the Valkyrie technique in a walking blood bank scenario. Um, we did a lot of um, mass casualty training. And as a background to that, that's because I was the mass casualty director on Kandahar. And so I just kind of had done that training my entire time just two years prior. And so I brought that down to the ground level and said, okay, well, let's start working together as the ground, as the air, and as our group from Shock Trauma in how to do mass casualties together. And we trained not only the corpsmen, but started working with the CLS Marines, the Combat Lifesaver Marines. Because um, we were on a crisis response platform, and there were lots of things going on, as there always are in the Middle East. And so we trained with them. And in fact, it was weekly training, big trainings that we were putting on. And I had a great team that was very um, energetic and wanted to participate. And so we did lots of different trainings like this. Oh, wrong way. Sorry, guys. There's one. So this was a, oh, well, technology never, like, works for me. I'm probably a grandma. There we go. So we did things like this. This is a, like a flying en route care thing, which for the Marine Corps is not a usual thing. Like for CCAT, they're like, oh, this is no big deal. But for us, it's like, okay, let's try this out. So we worked with um, the C-130 squadron that was there in actually making a flying recess bay and basically flying in to a mass casualty scenario, taking on patients, resuscitating them, 
while we're trying to get them on and continuing resuscitation in the air. We did a, a flight with this, but this was 22 casualties. So working across the board there. I don't know. I'm missing one slide. There we go. That's what happened. Um, so in the middle here, this is one of our major field exercises there. Um, because again, while we were not really initially focused on this, um, there was always talk that we may need to do some type of non-combatant evacuation operation. And starting in June, the beginning of June, this started becoming more and more possible and tasked down to the Special Purpose MAGTAF to my CO there as a possibility for us to plan to. So in July, and I remember it because of my birthday, July 3rd, was the day that they said, well, we really need to do some very detailed level planning, our phase zero kind of planning situation. And under this new construct, as they kind of kept looking at the issue, they said, I think really the best way if we were to do this, which no one thought we were going to go into Afghanistan, would be to attach the STP directly to the infantry. Because, you know, the infantry were probably doing security type stuff. Logistics, who we would actually fault, we fell under for ADCON, would be doing more of the paperwork processing. So how about you, Kat Landa, start working with 2-1 and figuring out some type of plan? Now, again, I want to highlight that the Marines, and I'm saying from the colonel down, really thought this was going to be less than 5% chance of us doing this. And that was coming from Intel. Um, because the State Department had basically said, we've got it, we've got this, this is never going to happen. So even while we're watching the news and reading the news and there's lots of zipper updates that, you know, this is really an unstable place, the line was the State Department's not going to let this fail. It's too much of a big ticket item. So we did plan, and I was fortunate to work with 2-1, which their name is literally the professionals, and they're the most professional Marines I've ever worked with. Um, and we made very detailed plans. Now, in the big construct of things, we are a small group of people within a giant area of operations, and we fall under several other echelons of higher headquarters. At the highest in the level there was Joint Task Force, which included not only U.S. forces, tri-forces here, but also NATO forces. So, again, they had tasked us with doing some pretty detailed level planning without actually tying in anyone else really at, at a higher level on that detailed planning. Furthermore, the 24th MU had been extended and brought to the area rather than going on to further exercises like they were supposed to do, which is a, a shipboard Marine Corps unit, very much like a special purpose MAGTAF just on a ship. And in the end of July, they said, okay, well, now the 24th MU is going to take over planning. Special purpose MAGTAF, take over, you know, give all of your plans and send them to the MU which has a very similar structure and similar resources. So we did that. And then trying to combine those plans together really fell through, right? The MU's on a ship. It's very hard to do planning with them. We're on the ground. You know, 515 is our higher headquarters for the Marine Corps. But then there's, you know, you, I know that there are U.S. Army people that are involved. I know that there are Air Force people involved. And I know that we have NATO involved. And I've worked with NATO before. So I said, how are we coordinating this? And I sent up a lot of questions. Um, I was probably known for like, I have a question, because I had so many questions. Um, so things like, what is the MASCAL plan for this base, right? Because I remember from Kandahar, people that have been there, there is a very detailed NATO plan. I actually had it in my inbox from someone who had sent it to me before I went in. And I dug it through my, my, my uh, blue side 
email and found it. I said, this is what a NATO plan looks like. Can someone find this for me? And I sent that RFI, that request for information, up the um, medical side of the house and also up the infantry side of the house, right? Making sure that we were double tapping. And every time it came back to me that this is the plan, and it was only for one tiny sector, the North Hkaya area, where the Roll 2 is. Because, in reality, that was the only NATO area. The rest was kind of open. The Turkish were running things. But, again, there's a little strained uh, relationships there. So, never could get a, a full mass casualty plan. Um, so, we trained to whatever we could at 2-1, at the Special Purpose MAGTAF level. And, I, you know, all those questions, many of which went unanswered for various reasons, um, and kind of that Swiss cheese model. And so, yes, we didn't really have a joint plan, but we had a very streamlined plan together. And again, that wasn't the construct of thinking, oh, this probably won't happen, but hey, we got to pass time some, some way. So on the 15th of August, I was called for a very impromptu meeting um, early on a Sunday morning and uh, with 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines, their OPSO. Um, called me to attend one. And he didn't usually call me directly. He called me on, like, my cell phone. He was like, I need you to be here right now. So I walk up there, um, and it's a basically all of 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines' leadership, which they had kind of been sent out to various places. There were some in Syria. There were some in Jordan. And they had all fallen in. I'm like, oh, I haven't seen you since April. Okay, hi. So this is important. And they started saying, you know, it looks like this is going to happen. And the news hadn't come out yet. Um, on how bad things were, but I know Kandahar just fallen. I know that people were moving to Kabul. And really, a lot of the information we're getting was, like, open source. Like, Associated Press was putting it out, and we weren't hearing anything from the military side of the house. So I was like, this is not surprising. I think we are going to go. And during that meeting, it was like a four-hour meeting of kind of very detailed planning and figuring out logistics, and, you know, things hadn't gone sideways yet. About every 45 minutes, someone would come in and grab my friend Ben, um, he was the operations officer, and be like, I need you for a second. And then they come in and say, well, we got to change that plan because, uh, for instance, the tower, the flight tower is no longer manned. <laughs> There's no one there. Um, and we got to do this. And, oh, wait, we got to change that up because things were just very rapidly degrading on the ground there. And by the end of that meeting, it ended in, okay, we need to send a quartering party, which is just a very small group to go forward to kind of figure this out because it's, it's clear we're going to be going. Um, and so they asked people just to figure out the logistics. For, one ask for me, as the officer in charge of this group, was I need two people from your group just to go in and, like, liaison and figure out your logistics on the ground. Now, that being said, like I mentioned the other day, we'd already planned out and pre-staged, like, a shipping container out on the flight line along with the rest of the infantry on what we wanted to fly in. They're like, that's going to fly in. So I've got my quartering party that I'm sending, and Nikki Cook um, was the other ER doc with me. She had been wanting to get out and do things, and I was like, this is a good opportunity. It's a good opportunity for you to get and meet people at the role, too, and kind of see what that looks like, forge relationships, and um, give you some responsibility. So I sent her, and I sent my most senior um, combat-tested corpsman with her, our, our leading petty officer, so kind of my second in, in line in the senior enlisted advisor. And so they flew, thinking they were doing logistics. I was like, here's the things I want you to do. I want you to liaison with the role to figure out the structure there and figure out where we're going to work from, if you can. Otherwise, I'll figure it out when I get on the ground. Um, and I need you to find out a place that we can sleep um, that's nearby the role two, if possible, so that our rest cycle teams can be close to the role two, whereas if the rest of us are elsewhere, we'll have some people at both locations to kind of help out. So they went in, and as they are flying, I'm looking at the news, 
And what I'm seeing is this. So they flew in to the day that, and it says the 16th because, again, um, this is right, right afterwards. They flew into this mess here on the 16th. And um, it was terrifying for them. So Nikki's civilian trained, had gone to Okinawa. This is really her first operational anything. And flew in with my HM1, who had been to Afghanistan multiple times. And they both were terrified. Um, they basically landed at dark onto a dark flight line with planes nearly crashing into each other with people, ro roars of crowds around them. Uh, into a very unstable situation. They were quickly turned out and told by some of the medical leadership there that they needed to um, go guard the flight line with the Marines, with their pistols. With, you know, the Marines who are very well trained with their rifles. And so they did that for a short period of time. And fortunately, my HM1 was like, this is not where we're supposed to be. Like, if something goes sideways... This is not where we're supposed to be. We need to pull back. So they pulled back into a farm building. I, did, I saw it briefly when I got there. Um, and set up their backpack medicine in case something went down. And then as things settled a bit, they returned to the role too. Now it's funny that Travis had mentioned the um, guarding of the hospital, right? The prepared to defend the hospital because she gets to the role too. It's like, okay, few we're safe. These are medical people. It's going to be fine. And... They walked in, and they said, prepare to de defend the hospital. And so that's what they went into. Um, and so hiding in bathrooms, I mean, it sounded like an insane time. Unfortunately, it doesn't sound like there was anyone that actually got in at that point. You guys did a great job. But it surely was an eye-opening experience for them. But they were successful in commandeering some rooms for us to have, which I never really slept in because I was busy once I got there. But rooms for my people to sleep in, which was the most important part. And she did a phenomenal job liaisoning with the role to leadership, and especially with the trauma surgeons there and everyone. We flew in the following night. Um, we kind of were delayed. We came in with the 81st um, out of Qatar. We all kind of converged there. And um, flew in and landed early morning hours of the 17th. And actually, when I landed, this is we landed at night, I took this picture. It was a lot more stable then, but there were definitely lots of people kind of milling around. And I thought about that Afghan Special Operations Commanding Officer and telling me how beautiful it is in Afghanistan. And I said, this actually looks kind of beautiful. And I snapped a shot because I was thinking of him. And actually, in reality, the North Hkaya, where NATO was at, was actually very beautiful. So I took a picture of these roses while I was there that one day I'm going to a meeting. That's actually the role, too, I think, behind it. Correct me if I'm wrong, Travis. Um, so beautiful building, looked a lot like the one we were in in Kandahar. In fact, smelled the same, looked the same, barracks were the same, very weird. Um, and then, you know, I think there's like the chow hall or something out there. These were barracks over here. So it was actually very lovely. Um, but it became rapidly clear on the 17th and the 18th as we're meeting together that the role two is having way too many Afghans that are getting sent there while they're, you know, on standby for U.S. casualties. Um, there's a lot of just DNBI medicine that needs to be done in addition to the trauma that they went through. And so they were looking for a forward 
Roll1E or, or people to go out and actually be out and about. Now, the 24th MU has an STP. They had already gotten there just the day before, and they had set up in the PAX terminal. I've got a map later, but that's really right there in North Hkaya. So they were actually quite adjacent. They were, like, close walking distance from the Roll2. That was an important strategic spot because as they were getting on the flights, they could clear them if there was an issue, make sure people were ready to go. So I volunteered, and also finding out that 2-1 was going to abigate, I said, well, we're going to go with our people, like we talked about the other day. And so I got a grid written on a piece of paper that I took a picture of, so I had it, in case I lost it, from our intel officer late at night and saying, go find something there. I'm pretty sure there's a hardened structure. That's the closest hardened structure you're probably going to find to Abbeygate. And so we went out there, and it ended up being this building here, um, which was a security complex, um, a contract security complex. It was very weird. Um, there were, you could actually see out the gates in some videos initially until those went down. The water had been cut off, so, you know, we were... I had some very strict, like, bathroom rules and how we were going to dispose of things. And um, it was, it was uh, pretty austere. And so the first day, we went the night before. It was empty because they hadn't opened those gates yet. The next morning, two ones going. So I go ahead with two of my colleagues, one of my nurses, one of my corpsmen, to get set up. And this is what we walk into. And it is a packed mess. And there's no shade. And they have no water. And they have no food. And they've been there since, I guess, overnight, since I had left. And people were rioting and crowding, and they saw us coming in with just backpacks of gear and trying to follow us, seeing us with our water bottles and wanting them. And it's heartbreaking to be carrying water through a group of people who clearly look like they need it and wanting to give them that, but I've got one pack, and I don't know when I'm getting resupplied because we had dropped off. I've got other people coming, but I have no comms with them because there's no Wi-Fi. There's a jammer outside this building. And to have to have to ration that in such a humanitarian crisis is really rough. And that became a running theme there because we had no idea when we'd get resupplied. Um, we were kind of on our own in this location. It was, it was interesting. But we set up this little recess area. So this is what we were working out of. Now, I had mentioned the other day, again, we had all those med supplies planned to come in, and the Marines were like, they're coming in. Their S4 officers, like, they're coming in. But we came with our backpacks, right? My nurse had said, and that's actually her, Vela Huning right there, had said, you know, let's just grab these things. So we had these drop-down bags from all the, you know, uh, different exercises we had done. And so we had these drop-down bags, one with consumables, one with meds. Um, we had this move system, which is basically an oxygen concentrator and a vent and a monitor all put in one suction too. Um, we had another vent. We had, like, one oxygen canister, and that's really all we had initially. Um, and as I'm there, I'm, people are banging on the door wanting medical care. So we're really triaging them from the door because I, I can't support much. And there's just three of us for about eight hours while they were figuring out the uh, drive down. There were some issues with the ambulance. Um, so that was a key issue. So we basically convert, conformed this into a place that we could take care of people. There's another picture from the other side. Well, at least we had a trauma cabinet, and this is actually after our pro-pack had arrived and things like that. Now, a lot of these pictures I'm going to show are when we were not busy, but the first three days we were busy nonstop. I don't think I slept more than maybe an hour or two a day during that time because we were so chaotically busy. So I put my teams, other than Nikki and myself, the ER docs, they were on 24-hour rest cycles. So they'd work a 24-hour shift then go back and sleep next to the Roll 2, which had very nice barracks. They could get a shower sometimes get food, but then the chow hall closed down, so everyone was on MREs and kind of 
rest, and the rest of us would stay here. I put them in kind of sleeping cycles in a different conference room in this building. Um, but we stayed because there were so many patients, so much need. So the rest of these pictures are taken when we're not that busy. But um, we took care of lots of children, so it became really clear very quickly we needed pediatric supplies, which we already knew. We had planned for that. We had put together this beg, bar, and stolen, you know, Braslow-type kit that was sitting on the flight line in Saudi Arabia, and I think it ended up in Kuwait, to take care of these children. So this child over here had been trampled. Fortunately, obviously, her airways and taxi sitting up, but she had, I think, a broken leg. Um, this kiddo here had shrapnel to the head um, from a flashbang, and she had actually been tossed over the fence. Um, fortunately, the Turkish military was very aggressive, and they were in the area we were at, very aggressive in just grabbing the babies um, because, like I said the other day, a baby had died the night before we got there. And so this baby was motherless, parentless, familyless, and just brought to us. And fortunately, she was fine. It was all very superficial. We were able to kind of get it out, clearly mentating normally. And at that time, it was unclear what the medical rules of engagement were, which I had asked for months in advance. And so when we got there, they said, well, right now, the medical rules of engagement are if we've shot them, we can take care of them at the rule two. But if we haven't, you can take care of them and then treat them and treat them. And that became a very unclear thing. And, and we really advocated. I have to put it out there. My nurses did a great job because I was busy down here in making sure that that got done um, to get those to us. So initially, I'm hanging on to this baby like, you know, it would be nice for her to be at a higher level of care, but we'll hang on to her. While she's here, we get gassed. There's gas coming, CS gas coming under the, the door um, because someone shot a CS gas container at our building to clear the riots because they're rioting outside. And we had basically patient, it was the saddest sound because people are screaming and banging at our door, wanting to come in, and you know what's going on. And I'm shuffling the patients we have here and ourselves into a back room, which I already had a plan as like a getaway area, close to where Calm was. And so we sat back there for a little bit while that went down outside. So we wanted to be ready to actually care for real people, for real injuries, and knowing that CS gas is not going to kill you. But I was a little concerned about a baby with lots of open wounds on her head. A really touching story I want to just lean into. A lot of very interesting and, and heartbreaking, but also heartwarming things happened during this time. This baby um, was with us for about four hours. This is, I think, the first day we, first or second day we, we opened, and it was before they figured out what to do with displaced children or unaccompanied minors. I don't know. We had called the role to our contacts there. At that time, we had the landline, which went out very quickly thereafter, and the answer on the other arm was like, we don't know what to do with them yet. Okay, cool. So I'm going to hang on to this baby. But fortunately, hours later, as my corpsman, who was so sweet with her, was like, Doc, I don't think we can hang on to her all day. I'm like, are you sure you don't want to take her home? Because I think, I think we can handle her. Um, a woman, or a corpsman came to our door, was knocking, and that's the only people we were letting in were people that were speaking English at that time that we could identify because there was so much banging at our door for people wanting things and needing things. And so we had corpsmen out there kind of triaging from 1-8. They volunteered their services to kind of weed out who really needed to see us. But they brought a woman to the door, and he said, I have a woman looking for a baby. Do you have a baby? And we're like, we have a baby. Is this the baby you're looking for? And just to see the tears of just relief and joy and stress and pain. And the only way I can describe this entire experience and what people had there was just complete despair with a speckling, maybe a little couple sprinkles of hope. And that was one of those hope moments. 
This little boy here, this was during, again, when we weren't sure about the medical rules of engagement. This is finally when we are deciding, well, you know what, he needs to go to the rule too. I don't care. He's going to go. Um, this little boy had come to us three times in probably less than 24 hours with his mom, and he was severely dehydrated, and we'd give him fluids, and we'd give him antiemetics, and we'd give him all these things, and they just kept bringing him back and bringing him back, and he was more and more somnolent as he came back. The only uh, laboratory test we had was an ISAT, and his glucose was fine, but clearly he needed some further workup. Something was going on. So fortunately, we finally just took this kid, and at that point in time, it seemed like the medical rules of engagement had been established, as in, if these people are on this property... <laughs> Inside these gates, we will take care of them. And so that was a transition in how we could actually care for people at that point in time. And that was a huge relief to us. Now, that being said, I'm going to put a little caveat here just to put in the back of your mind because it will come back up later in the talk. I pushed that information out to the Marines, but here we're already, you know, three days into a huge operation. And my Marines have been busy working 18-hour days down at Abbey Gate trying to pull people who have papers and turn people away, unfortunately, that don't and working nonstop at Abbey Gate. And so I did push that out to the leadership, but it never filtered down to the lowest level. That's what happens when we don't have information ahead of time. That's clear. But at this point in time, it was, you know, take care of whomever and figure it out from there. We'll take the pregnant patients. That became another huge issue of women coming in um, who were pregnant or didn't know if they were pregnant and lots of ultrasounds. And again, my butterfly was super helpful. Any type of portable ultrasound would have been very incredibly helpful, and that's a moment that it was so helpful for things like placental abruption, diagnose that on a woman, uh, just making sure someone didn't have an ectopic, or they're cramping, or whatever the issue is. These women hadn't had any prenatal care, most of them, never had a cervix check, so this was kind of like a huge cultural barrier here. But lots of, lots of women, so many women, and part of it was emotional, physical exhaustion, and um, part of it was the stress and physical um, basically assault they had coming in by the Taliban. Part of it was the massive crowds and being trampled. And part of it was, you know, true issues. Like we had lots of people with seizures or dehydration or hypoglycemia that were coming to us or things that we just didn't know. Right? I've got a Propac. I can do a five lead. I've got a glucometer. I've got my ultrasound and I got my hands and my eyes and my ears and we'll figure it out from there. And um, so we continued to take care of them. But these women, as they felt better, would just cry. You know, they'd oftentimes come in incredibly somnolent. And they were mostly women. Um, we had some men, but a lot of women. When they'd come to, they would just cry and hug us. And they were just so happy to see women, I think, partially, partially being a place that was safe. And... Um, to know that they have that next moment. I'm going to take my emotional support coffee for a second. So we treated lots of, lots of these women, and um, again, just making things work, right? So slowly but surely, we had supplies kind of start filtering down. I was telling someone earlier that Germany and Norway and all these other countries started sending, like, medicines. And so it, it, it was a slow roll at first because our huge crisis was really those first few days down at that gate. But as we started moving people, planes coming in started coming in with supplies. And so those supplies were available at that time. And so the metformin that someone needed was there. And the, the insulin never made it down there, but we actually cowboyed. I mean, honestly, this is what we were at, using someone's insulin and just, okay, well, you've got extra. Are you willing to share? Cool. And we're just going to go ahead and give this to whoever needs it. Um, the people are beautiful. 
Um, I have to tell a story about the placental abruption. I, did, I don't know if I, did I tell this the other day? No. Um, when this woman came in with, what's that? The obstetrician, yeah. So there's an obstetrician there, and she was so kind and so beautiful and so helpful. But she was only one of many. So before they could actually get us real interpreters, the contracts hadn't gone fast enough. So the first few days when we're so busy, we have no interpreters. And so people would volunteer. Afghans would come in and say, I, I speak really good. They tell you, like, I speak great English. Can I please help you? Can I please? I'm stuck here, too. I'd love to help you. And so one woman was a young woman, and she was about to do her master's in international business. She was doing school in Pakistan, had come home for the summer or whatever it was, and was stuck there and now trying to evacuate. And she was so sweet, and she had helped out a lot. And I asked her when, when you know, she was there for about a day. I asked her, I said, Can, do you mind if I ask you what it's like outside of these gates? And at this time, inside the gate right there where we were at, there were feces everywhere. There were not enough toilets. There's not enough to eat. There's no shade. They're not eating MREs. Um, there's not enough anything at that time. And they're crowded in like cattle on a, on, a, on a train, right? And she said it makes this place look like heaven outside these gates. These people had basically walked, run, driven I don't know how, got into Kabul over days for some of them. And she said, in the streets, there's dead bodies everywhere. The Taliban is literally just shooting people. There are people being trampled because everyone is so terrorized that they get trampled and laid off to the side. So the smell is horrible. And then once you get to the gates, the Taliban are coming out and butt-stalking people, which we saw plenty of that, in the face, stealing their things, and creating more havoc and terror. And these were people that we were working with at the time. But despite all this, she had a sunny disposition, was so helpful and thoughtful, and even trying to offer us things. Another piggyback story, another older woman had one bag with her and was so helpful or so happy and thankful for the care. She gets out a bag of jewelry and starts doling out pieces of this to us. And I know in that culture, you can't say no. Like, I, I, we, we went through that. We've been there. And so I was like, I don't want to take this from her. My corpsmen are trying to give it back. I'm like, you can't do that in this call. You have to accept it. Um, so those types of things. These people are absolutely beautiful. And it just really hurt to see them like this in this moment and stuck there. But eventually, they started moving people. And at that point in time we were able to move a little bit more too. So then we started getting more serious patients as people are going through and actually getting the seriously ill ones from Abbey Gate, from East Gate, and being able to evacuate them in our ambulance there. And, you know, in retrospect, all of these patients, these DNBI patients, were great practice for what actually ended up happening because our corpsmen and our Marines at Abbey Gate with 2-1 and 1-8-BLT who was with us, behind us, um, knew where we were. They knew what our capabilities were. They knew what we did have. They knew what we didn't have. They had interfaced with us and, act, and really became very comfortable moving patients. And so that was a key piece that I think was very helpful despite the tragedy of this humanitarian disaster. I think that was very helpful for them to understand that. And also, as we were less busy with so many like smaller DNBI patients, we were able to actually kind of provide the logistics came in. So um, the formula came down to us. We were able to start making bottles. This is where my corpsman making making baby bottles and doling out diapers. And we were able to get out to the gates and actually check on our corpsmen and see how they're doing. And this is the trash that was left um, 
right outside the gate, and it breaks your heart that people like brought one bag and were wanting to bring the little 12-month tag to take their baby picture with to put on social media. Um, but it cleared out, and we were able to kind of reorganize and figure out what we had left and still be prepared. And so that was a kind of nice transition as we got closer to the 26th, which again was a surprise. So the night before the 26th, on the 25th, um, one of my nurses who had been off, and in their off time they were really going to meetings uh, that I couldn't attend, she came down late, and she wasn't due to come back until the next morning. She came down with my chief, which is my senior enlisted advisor, um, and said, 2-1 is asking if we can push our ambulance down to Abbeygate. There's an increased threat of an IED. They're asking if we can push some support over there. I said, absolutely, this is what we're here for. Um, so we sent that night a group of four, one en route care nurse, one en route care corpsman, and then two other corpsmen, one as a driver, one as an assistant driver, but also to have extra hands on the ground, if necessary, down to the gate. And they started doing 12-hour cycles. So the next morning, they were replaced by another set. And um, this is kind of where they were at. So this is our location here. I don't think I have a pointer, but um, we're kind of here on the right-hand side. That's where the CCP was over at Abbey Gates. So we're very close, a five-minute walk, two-minute drive. Again, this is us over here. And here's the CCP. And in this one, I've marked where the blast site was at the Sniper Tower. Um, just for kind of situational awareness, the Roll 2 was up there at the top. And the Muse uh, STP was over close to the flight line at the PAX terminal. Of note, we had tried to um, initially, the very first day I'd gotten there, see if we could jump the flight line if there was ever an issue. And it actually became more of a hazard to try and clear the flights. So going around was the only way. And it would take about... 15 minutes without anyone in the roads, which plays into the actual mass casualty because there's lots of people now there. But 15-minute drive from the CCP at um, Abbeygate over to the Roll 2 in about 12 minutes from where we were at. So the morning of the 26th um, was beautiful. I actually did take that. This is the morning of the 26th. This is 5.30 in the morning there. <clears throat> it was actually a really beautiful morning. And it was very quiet, which is always a bad word in the ER. Um, very quiet. And 24th Mew had stopped by because they had loaned us some equipment and said, hey, I think we're all pulling out today. So we need our equipment. <laughs> I'm like, you know there's an increased threat. They're like, oh, yeah, we're going to move out before that. So they grabbed their things, and we were left with that move system and those bags. The things that were in that picture, that's what we were left with at the time of this mass casualty. And so as the day went on, pretty nonchalant. And again, there was that kind of talk like, oh, yeah, 2-1 might pull out. But as the day went forward... They wanted to continue. Those Marines wanted to continue um, because this is what it was like. This is actually the CCP point. You can see um, this is Abbey Gate as you're going in. There's some litters right there, and around the corner there was like a mini BAS, which is a Corman-run BAS. This is it. This is, this is the beginning of Abbey Gate. And the tower, the Sniper Tower, you can see in the very far back there in the middle behind this, this young man's head, that far distance, that's the Sniper Tower. And... Um, so the Marines actually, there were so many, so many people outside those gates still, they chose from 2-1 to stay there and continue working, despite the fact that they knew there was an increased threat level. Because they had been so touched and hurt, and the moral injury was already there, right? They were just trying to do their best at this point in time and do as much good as possible. So at about 17.36, we felt and heard a very large explosion and within seconds, my comm Marines, I had two of them, 
One of them comes out with his radio. He's like, there's been a blast at Abigail. And I was like, okay, this is what we've been preparing. In my mind, like, oh, all the expletives, this is what we've been preparing for, but I didn't think this was going to happen. So send a text to the role two, like, there's been a blast. I don't know about the casualties yet, pending. Get, get our uh, litters outside. Get your bags open. Get your PPE on. Let's get going here. Um, and within a couple more minutes, it was clear that there were lots of casualties and U.S. casualties that came over the radio. And within minutes, we had a few patients coming to us. Couple, the first two had kind of airway neck-type injuries, so these corpsmen were worried about airway and worried about driving them around and also wanting to get back because they knew there were lots of other casualties there. And we got the U.S. casualties. They, they basically pivoted to the U.S. casualties from the Afghans, um, even though the Afghans were many of the casualties as corpsmen. That's their jobs. So they pivoted to those people first. Although the children oftentimes would get thrown in with the Marines too. But our first group, many of which these trucks had already gone by, so I knew they were going to the role too. There were some seriously injured, and many of which were actually dead on arrival when they got there. But um, we got a couple airway ones, you know, massive soft tissue injury, which is a classic trauma airway, which is like, hey, if I, you can sit up and talk, or at least attempt to talk, you're going to be okay. Another was an expanding hematoma in the neck, which was a carotid artery injury from Prague. And so as I'm finishing my trauma assessment on the soft tissue injury, and I'm like, you look pretty good, I'm hearing screaming from outside the door. And the door was right here. I had it propped open because I wanted to be able to hear what was going on. And it was one of the corpsmen I recognized from the sniper group. And um, there's a box truck, just a moving truck, and they're pulling a man out on a riot shield. And this is an ashen gray person. So I basically throw this Marine with soft tissue injuries on the floor. Like, you need to move. Wipe down my arm, all the blood that's all over my, my table, and basically get ready for this other patient. Now, as a, just a reminder, <laughs> we had divided up our people. So there were only five of us, two doctors and three corpsmen in this area at the time, working on multiple patients. And also our ambulance is still actively engaged at the gate and we're trying to flag down a ride. So we were able to get through this, this patient who was so critically ill and get to work on him. And I'll go more into that story in a little bit. But it was very chaotic trying to get someone on the radio to get us a vehicle. And he ended up going into a vehicle with Nikki because I had her bagging him. And I said, do not stop. Do not let them stop you in the, trauma, in the ambulance bay. Take this patient immediately inside. But fortunately, we had two units of blood that we had stolen from the roll two and put in our fridge. So he got blood there. He got bilateral chest tubes. He got lines. He got oxygen. And that's what he needed to make it the next 30 minutes to get to the next level of care. This is our room afterwards. This is after we cleaned. Um, so I just want to be a reminder of uh, how messy this can be. So we saw a total of seven patients um, at our site uh, of U.S. people that were from our own battalion we were supporting. And then I went outside as I was seeing some pickup trips going by to do some kind of en route, just kind of check in on Afghans as they're in the back to make sure they're okay to get up there. My other team that was off had gone to the ambulance bay, and I don't know if you had seen them, Travis, but they were helping out with the meds and TCCC and things like that. So they're actively engaged there, too. And then we basically depleted all of our resources, and by 3 in the morning, I'm packing this up and saying, you know, we've got our en route care here, but I've got nothing else I can do at this site. So we're going to close it up, and if there's any secondary blast, they're going to have to come back around to the roll two. So 
lessons learned for future operations. So this, I mean, every time I tell this story, I'm like, well, why am I telling this story again? What's, what's the purpose of this? And I don't know, you may be thinking that too, because I get, I get tired of hearing myself. Um, <laughs> but in the realm of everything, especially as we're looking at what's going on in the Ukraine and in, in Eastern Europe, and as we're looking at Indo-PACOM, I'm like, how does this apply? You know, this is like the end of an era, right? We closed out CENTCOM. We finished Afghanistan for 20 years. So how does this apply in this new era? And sometimes I get a little jaded. I'm like, I don't know if this would ever really benefit. Like, what, how does this benefit? This is not CENTCOM anymore. We got, you know, shipboard missions. And how does this work? So this has been my challenge of really trying to figure out what, what can we make out of this? Like, what, what lessons can we actually learn? And the first one is this. Um, I'll tell you a story. So that very sick patient, and I'm trying to do a full trauma resuscitation basically by myself because my other ER doctor is fully employed. One of her corpsmen's fully employed. The corpsman that wasn't is a prev med tech who looks completely out of his out of his mind. And I'm like, draw the meds. I know I know we taught you this. Draw the meds. Um, and watch these other patients. I've sat there on the floor. The one corpsman I had with me, who is a very junior corpsman, who I know we had trained, and I know he was able to do these things, I know that he was capable, could not perform in this moment. He could not perform. In fact, he pulled out a line that he couldn't get in, that by the grace of God, a soft medic was walking by, said, do you need help? I said, yes, absolutely, put this line in. And as I'm drilling in a IO into the, the one leg that's available and also trying to put oxygen on a patient, also trying to turn on the oxygen, and this one corpsman just crumbled. And so the one senior corpsman that was with us literally was bouncing between two beds, and she was a rock star. Why? It wasn't because she was senior. It was because she had had prior ER experience, OCONUS ER experience, and also had been an ER tech before her Navy career. My junior corpsman, despite the fact we had put him on some ER shifts before we deployed, had been an admin corpsman at Med Battalion, as many of these Med Battalion corpsmen are, as many of our medics are. They do admin jobs or they'll do vital signs but they don't see true trauma patients. And it's one thing to see trauma patients. I was like, I've seen trauma, I've done trauma. I've been already been to Afghanistan, it's no big deal. But when they come in wearing your uniform, your exact uniform, it is a different story. So I can only imagine for this corpsman who's never seen this, he's 22 years old, he's a goofball. Like he fell apart and I could only blame myself. So I said, how could we get these corpsmen into more trauma training? And fortunately, there was that soft medic that was able to help, and this patient did die, because <laughs> I truly thought he did. Um, invest in your corpsmen. Invest in your medics. Get them into trauma scenarios. Get them in with sick patients. Get them into the hospital. They have to be exposed to sick patients. They have to be able to get in lines in people that are difficult. And whether that's an old lady with crappy veins who's septic, or someone who has zero blood left, because that patient I keep coming back to, when I put in his finger through thoracoscopy, there was no blood. There was no blood coming out of his leg. He actually ended up having a, what the anesthesiologist who took care of him at the role two, it really truly saved his life. Um, he had a non, what they consider a non-survivable injury. He had an iliac artery transaction. 
Um, but he bled out on the field. And in fact, I found out a couple months ago, as I was talking to some of the 2-1 guys, they were like, we found him under a pile of dead bodies, which is why he came to you so late, um, which is why he was nearly dead. Invest. Invest time. Invest energy. Invest the fight into exposing our people, not just ourselves, not just our nurses, but our corpsmen and medics, into trauma scenarios in sick patients. Second lesson I've taken out of this is standardizing mass casualty training. Now, I keep coming back. I was very frustrated with the fact that I was having a hard time figuring out who's who in this giant umbrella of who's supposed to be responding here and what the big picture mass casualty plan is. And that's going to change from place to place. I'm not going to harp on that while it was frustrating. That is over. But what's not are the future conflicts and the different AOs we're going to be going to. And so mass casualty training can be standardized. And in fact, I was really encouraged when I went to um, the committee of TCCC last month, and they're talking about making a TCCC mass casualty plan. And I think that is so brilliant. And so I want us as military emergency medicine leaders to be at the forefront of this and pushing this. Because it's not just training for us. We can figure it out in the day. Like I, We have the skills for this. And it's not just our corpsmen. It's actually teaching mass casualty training to our ground forces, to our logisticians, to the line. These are the people that need to know this. And it's not just in the military. It's also for our civilian, right? We've had plenty of terrorist attacks. We've had plenty of incidental things that happen, natural disasters. And everyone should know this in the military. We should be the subject matter experts. And when I say we, we as in all services, we as in the VA, we as in everyone here. And the most junior person from the Marine Corps should be able to speak the same language if they're at a mass casualty as the PFC from the Army, as whatever your most junior thing in the Air Force, airmen. In <laughs> the most junior airmen in the Air Force. You know, we should all be on the same page. And I'm also encouraged, and I'm hopeful, and I'd like to try to get in on this, is that this TCCC mass casualty training, if we can do it well, if we can pull this off well, it'll go to the masses, just like our normal basic TCCC will just like DEA uses it, and Border Patrol, and the FBI, and every other interagency, so we can all be on the same page going forward to these global crises. I see you. Okay, almost done, I promise. Lastly, prepare for prolonged casualty care. Now, I want to highlight that there were multiple, multiple, multiple trauma teams. And when I say trauma teams, trauma surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, anesthesia, ER doctor, they ran four ORs, like they basically divided two ORs into four different areas, and were able to take care of all of these surgical patients. And I mean, they had over 50 casualties that needed actual acute care, many of which went to the OR over time. But So we didn't have to do prolonged casualty care. But what we did do was model something that can be used. So I was talking about it with most of you. I won't harp on it too much. The morning after the mass casualty, this is 12 hours after the blast, a loudspeaker call goes out for walking blood bank. And my uh, AOIC, Vela Huning, was the ERC nurse down there. And she hears it. A bunch of the Marines are trying to leave. And she's like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. She's like, don't we have Valkyrie kits? Who's got a Valkyrie kit? How many do we have? Seven? Cool. Seven Marines that are low tighter. I'll get over here. And the corpsmen and the CLS Marines gather their blood. They sit them out here at their CCP. That's what this kind of darker picture is. You see them grabbing blood. They put their units into an MRE box and transport them around the flight line, that map you saw, in 37 minutes. They got seven units of fresh, 
low titer O blood into the lab, and I know this for a fact because my lab corpsman was in the lab at the time, deliver it there while they've just drawn the sixth unit from their walking blood bank that's not low titer O screened. And so, in my opinion, this is superior blood. And they did it faster than a huge walking blood bank. Why? Because we had the right people, we had the right training, we had the right resources, we're able to do it. So if we're able to do this for a walking blood bank, a distant one that kind of didn't disrupt the operations at that gate and got them out of there on time, we can give this to every other uh, person in the military, right? This is, this is something we can do. This is something that's teachable. Last thing I want to go over right here is just letting you know that there was a huge moral injury. And the mass casualty, we prepare for mass casualties. We prepare mentally for combat trauma. We prepare for the fact we're going to see people that are in our uniform injured, even though it is traumatic. But a lot of the moral injury came from doing this. Those two one Marines, that's one eight Marines. And they're there telling children that they can't come in. They're there having to return people outside I had to even, and I saw just a snippet of it, I, when I went down to the gate after we had kind of, before the gas casualty and after we had so many patients, I was able to go down to the gate to check on my Marines. There's a woman that's seizing. I'm like, well, we probably should grab her. Let's just toss her in the ambulance. And I talked to the soldier that's standing there, like, what's going on? Like, I don't know, this just started happening. I'm like, can I take her? She's like, well, she's actually supposed to leave. I said, well, I will bring her back. <laughs> she needs care. So we put her in the back of the ambulance. Long story short, she gets some benzos. I don't know why she was seizing, but she wakes up screaming about the Taliban, that they're going to kill her, they're going to kill her family, they've already killed her parents, um, that even if they don't kill her physically, she has no brothers, she has no uncles, she has no men in the family who can go out and actually provide for her. And she clawed into my hand as she's telling me this story, story and telling me to not let her go. So... I need a dog. <laughs> so these boys went through a lot more. A lot more. And so as the people that take care of them, please understand that if they are here, they're going to need help. Last thoughts. I know I'm up for time. Oh, there we go. Practice of medicine. Oop, there we go. Practice of medicine is not the practice of medical leadership. So when we talk about the practice of medicine, we're talking about caring for patients in front of us, being proficient in our jobs, our KSAs, right? We're talking about us, right? And how we perform and how we do. And, you know, we all like to be rock stars, right? Everyone wants to be a rock star. But the practice of medical leadership is caring about patients that you may never see. It's caring about people that you may never take care of. It's caring about your forces that are on the ground. It's having the foresight to look forward and use things like creativity. Oh, did I do this on this one? Wargaming, imagination. I'm just going to keep clicking. Curiosity. Utilizing things that we don't usually associate with military leadership or with you know, always with medical leadership, right? These are oftentimes very hard sciences and, you know, tactics and things like that. You have to use your imagination. You have to use your curiosity. You have to build relationships. You have to be able to work outside the box and get things done as a medical leader. And that's not something that's teachable for many people. 
So the last thing I want to leave us with, man, catastrophize. I put that on there just because we spent like maybe 25 minutes once a week to catastrophize going into this, figuring things out. I want to leave you here. I'm sorry I've gone over time. But how do we inspire our colleagues from medical leaders? Because by the selection of us coming here, I know we're medical leaders. Like, this is like, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. Great. Um, we are the medical leaders, right? But how do we inspire our colleagues that don't want to be in the military anymore and who are stuck here, who are inevitably going to be deployed and need to step up to the plate? How do we inspire them to be a medical leader in those situations? How do we inspire the people that did civilian residencies who have no idea what they're doing and are going straight out to a med battalion or getting deployed? We have all these NADS grads, right? Like, how, how do we teach them to be a medical leader in the military? And that's what I want to leave us with today. I'm sorry I've gone over time. That's all I've got. Any questions? All right. Thank you. GSASEP is proud to be the premier continuing medical education source for military and federal emergency physicians. To purchase CME for the episode you just listened to, please click on the link in the show notes. The Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians promotes quality emergency care and enhances the development of emergency physicians who serve our nation from training through retirement. Learn more about our chapter at www.gsacep.org.